Well, hello. Good uh, morning, good afternoon, good evening, good middle of the night to you and all that kind of stuff. It's Thursday. It's 8 o'clock in the UK, 3 p.m. in the US. We're here on WBN 324. It's Paul English Live. And on tonight's show, it's no secret. Um, those of you that have been tuning in over the past few weeks, past couple of months, will know that I've uh, dabbled in and out from show to show with regards to the French Revolution and droned on and on and on about the Napoleon film. Well, we're going to talk about the film, but a whole lot more as well. joined by a, an ancient colleague of mine who I'll introduce shortly to you once we get up and running and we're going to be going through things. We've got a little comical sort of coincidence that took place this week for both of us, obviously. That's why it's a coincidence. So yes, you're here listening to Paul English Live on WBN 324 and uh, and other stations. I'll mention them later on the show. We're also on Free Fall Radio out of South Africa. And we're here for the next two hours through to uh, 10 p.m. in the UK, 5 p.m. US Eastern Time. I think it's time to throttle that down a bit now, don't you? Because, you know, really, in all honesty, that's not the sort of music they were listening to 200 years ago. And I thought we would try and get into the mood as best we could uh, this evening with all sorts of things. Um, like I said there, just briefly in the in the introduction, um, over the ever since I started this thing, for some strange reason, actually it wasn't strange at all, I knew that the... Um, that the Ridley Scott, Sir Ridley Scott film of Napoleon was chugging along down the old lines and was due to arrive here, uh, when was it now? It was Thanksgiving Day, actually, November the 23rd, 24th, so, you know, just a couple of weeks ago. And um, I'd not managed to get round to seeing the film, and somebody I know had not managed to get round to see it either, and I think I've been threatening or saying regularly here on the show that I'd get round to see it. Well, that, that kind of happened. And, and a good friend of mine, who I'm going to introduce right now, was also there. I'd like to welcome Scott of the Napoleonic. Um, uh, Maleficus, good evening. How are you? And welcome to the show. <laughs> good evening. You know, sorry for all those listeners that was expecting Andy Hitchcock. <laughs> <laughs> no one was expecting him. Who's he? I have no idea who you're, ta who are you talking about. <laughs> Well, it seems strange to be on air with you, actually, without having Andy here, has to be said. Well, if he won't go and watch happen. films, you know, actually, we've got a, uh, you know, I was thinking of notifying him. So, listeners, you might not know who we're talking about. It's, it's terrible, isn't it, when hosts have little in-chats like this. But uh, myself and Maleficus and a good colleague, a really good colleague, also an author called Andrew Carrington Hitchcock, have done a bucket load of shows together. Uh, there's always been sorts of little handover processes, and then we've rowed publicly on air. We've never done that, actually, have we? It's always been incredibly civilised, hasn't it? It is. Very, very British and civilised. I have rowed on air, but that was with a... With, with an Aussie chap who, who obviously, you know, he's always up for a fight. So that's <laughs> as, as those, as those uh, uh, 
good salt of the earth Aussies are. But yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, yeah. I, we've never come to harsh words, I believe, sir. Well, it's the first time yet. I mean, we've got two <laughs> hours to go. They've got two hours. This could develop into an explosive sort of contretemps between the two of us, couldn't it, really? I don't think it will, of course. <laughs> and uh, I was thinking of notifying him and saying, um, uh, you know, uh, could you get out and see the film? But this happened really quickly, didn't it? So let's, it did, yeah. let's get stuck into what was actually happening. What, what is it that was actually happening? You contacted me earlier in the week to brag about the fact that you were going to the pictures, as we call it over here in the UK. We sometimes call the movies the pictures. Isn't that right? <laughs> it is. Yeah, I did. I bragged, saying, ha-ha, I'm going to go and see Napoleon before you, essentially, you d- um, you, while you taking did, my actually. father with me. Yeah. 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 You actually went. I, when I went, I went all Billy No Mates, okay? So... Um, but <laughs> if it hadn't been for my dad, I would have been Billy No Mates as well. There was only seven other people in the cinema. <laughs> Actually, you know what? Yeah, that's that's good. Okay, so you, you win on the on the low attendance thing. I counted in where I was. We had thirty five in there, and I I think that the screening for me started at ten to six, which of course is not a particularly uh, top time of the week on a Wednesday, you know. So um, there was that. But reading between the lines, Maleficus. Scott of the Napoleonic. It's much better than Scott of the Antarctic, I think, really, for this evening, don't you think? Yeah, um, we'll, we'll, we'll roll with it. We'll, we'll, we'll roll with it, it won't we? <laughs> I think your dad's responsible for all of this when you think about it. I mean, if, if you'd not invited your dad along, you would never have gone. You wouldn't have rolled off to the cinema all by yourself like sad old me, would you? Or would you? No, no probably not, I have to say. Um, particularly not on a... Well, the thing is, I normally work at my dad's place on a Wednesday day mm-hmm. anyway and um, because the weather was rubbish uh, or, or was supposed to be rubbish it actually turned out alright so I got away scot-free with that one right. I phoned him out and said look weather's going to be crap on Wednesday why don't we um, why don't I take you to see Napoleon instead Yes. and he was like well that's, that's, that's a good idea so yeah I, I bought a couple of tickets one was a lot considerably cheaper than my own because my father is 82 years of age right um, and is historian as well so it it was a no i would not have trundled off on my own particularly on a wednesday afternoon my showing was at 1 p.m so hence the low attendance middle of the week lunchtime right <laughs> so i was surrounded I, I think i was the only person in the cinema that paid full price for the ticket <laughs> was surrounded by oaps really? um, yeah um, and they all for some reason all we were like the second lot in there and all the other lots that arrived had this sort of herd mentality where they felt like they had to bunch close to us so i couldn't swear or anything to my dad when you know when when things went wrong with the film you know why do you often swear to your dad when things go wrong with films me 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 and my dad um have have pretty foul mouths when it when it comes to just well, I'm shocked, really. Blunt, with, honest and blunt with each other, you know. I mean, I didn't um, bring you on here tonight, Maleficus, to lower the tone of the show. You know, this is really this has got off to a sticky start, hasn't it? Really, I mean, it's just. Uh, but you know what? I'm actually, I am very jealous. My teasing aside, uh, I think it must be wonderful to go to the cinema with your dad. I, uh, I can't remember the last time I was when I went to the cinema with my dad. It was probably about 1975 or something. So that's a long time. time. It's yeah. the first time I've ever been to the cinema with my dad ever really ever, ever. yeah um because he was always you know we were a very traditional family and i know my mum worked a bit when i was a kid but my dad was was he was rarely at home mm-hmm. he was always working 
So, um, and I don't, I'm not a big uh, cinema goer anyway. I don't think I've, I haven't been to the cinema, I think, since the first Lord of the Rings film came out. And I can't remember when that was. It was that long ago. Um, but it was a considerable few years ago. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I'm not, I don't do fiction. I don't have a TV at home. Well, we, we have a TV, but I don't utilize it. We don't have a license, so we don't have terrestrial TV or anything like that. Yes, yeah. folks, over in the States, we have to have a license to be indoctrinated over here in the UK. <laughs> well, we do quite like it, though, don't we? We like to pay for our indoctrination. I think, at least we feel as though we're getting our money, don't we? Our well, money's it's worth. It's a done thing, isn't it, old boy? It is the done thing. It really is. It really is. I, uh, yeah, so, I mean, obviously, we talked very briefly yesterday, and uh, this is not really about cinema-going habits, but I think it's worth mentioning. You said, that is a long time. Okay, so you win on that one as well. Um, because the last time I went to the cinema was 2014, I think, or 13, so nearly 10 or 11 years ago, something like that. Um Interestingly, ironically, wonderfully and marvellously, at the very same cinema that I went to yesterday, which happens to be the oldest cinema in England. Now, people are eagerly going off to check where it is and go, I know, I know where he lives and all that kind of stuff. But it's a beautiful cinema and uh, built in 1911 and still fitted out in that way. And I get carried away just by being in the buildings. As you know, people that listen in here will know that I drone on a bit about architecture and things like this. So it was lovely to be there and in this nice place i picked exactly the right seat there is a right seat of course in the cinema i got it it's g12 i'm just letting you know row g uh, seat 12 slap bang in the middle literally looking right in the center of the screen and away we went really and um i i did buy a bag of toffees or something like that i can't remember what it was so it make, it turns you into a big kid doesn't it going back it to the, really, yeah. the cinema yeah yeah and i i, I kind of saw myself there here i am you know, in my early 60s, as it were. I don't look that old, but it doesn't really, it doesn't matter really what you say about yourself. You start whittering on about it. And I'm going out to the cinema all Billy No Mates. I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, you sad bugger. You know, it's really bad. <laughs> there was, I couldn't actually bring anybody because I actually have a situation at home, you know, where I have to leave someone at home looking after my wife and things like this. So I don't take my wife to the cinema at the moment. Um, and uh, not that she would necessarily, although she would have probably loved the love story side of it. Anyway, so, so there we were. We both went and saw it yesterday. We both didn't decide to talk anything about it. And now we're going to talk about the film. We're going to talk about some of the history and the run-up to the events in the film. And some of the things I suggest we're going to talk about that were not in the film, um, uh, which is a lot. And there's a lot that's not in the film. And really, I suppose I was thinking that's not too surprising. In fact, that didn't surprise me at all. Because if you've got even a rudimentary understanding of the life of this man, particularly his public life, which is from about 1791 to 1821, a sort of 30-year, just in a 25 to 30-year period, um, the amount of larks he got up to, the things he got up to and did with his life, you can't really say it's a life uh, not half-lived, can you? It was a life lived to the absolute full, I think. Absolutely. I mean, uh, to be fair, I think you're right. I mean, when I the the film's roughly three hours, something like that, isn't it? Two and a half, three hours, something like that. Mm -hmm. And and if if you had done a trilogy like a Lord of the Rings style trilogy, three hours per film, you still wouldn't have covered the ground. So I'm amazed, in actual fact, uh, anyone that goes to watch the film, and I'm not suggesting anyone shouldn't watch the film, um, but anyone that goes to watch the film 
please be sure that you've got some sort of understanding of who Napoleon was and what he achieved and what he did because none of that's in the film, really. <laughs> no, Very it's little. It's mainly <laughs> about him as a person. Yes, it is. Uh, more than the actual escapades and the, the, the quote-unquote Napoleonic era. Uh, there's none of the Napoleonic era in the film other than a bunch of silly hats and some guillotines, I would say. They are nice hats, though, aren't they? We don't wear hats like that anymore. I wouldn't mind seeing them come back. I mean, poor old milliners. They've been thrashed over the last hundred years, really. But uh, yeah, I think yeah, that, that was really it. I went in expecting cinema because that's... I assume that that's what I'm going to get. I'm not expecting a historically accurate thing. And I've seen... I didn't look at any reviews before going to see it, because I can't be bothered, um, you know, for all sorts of reasons. It doesn't make any sense, actually, reading other people's reviews and views of this, that, and the other. Uh, you're just going to make up your own mind. And I've got a reasonable idea now of what they're likely to be saying about it. I mean, I was glad of it because, for all sorts of reasons, I think one of the main ones is that it provoked me three months ago to jump into looking at the French Revolution properly, which I'm still looking at, by the way. Obviously, there's a lot to look at. Um, and the reason for looking at that was not to become a history buff and go, oh, isn't this interesting? And, and can't I tell you some interesting facts that you didn't know? Although that that is useful. But was to really sort of flesh out that, that point on the chain, on the line, as it were, the way I view it anyway, which I sort of tend to draw in modern times from sort of like... Um, Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, right through to the present day, that the machinations that we're facing right now, and they've always been with us for thousands of years, but but really in their sort of modern form, um, run along that line. And this event, the French Revolution and Napoleon, arising phoenix-like from it, although that's that's not really a good analogy, I don't think. I think his life would have been extraordinary with or without it, but obviously not as extraordinary because of the of the energetic background from which he sprang this ruination of France in the early 1790s. Well, the whole of the 1790s was basically, you know, one mess after another. So, yeah. um, and uh, I should imagine that people don't have much of a knowledge of it uh, will be at a severe disadvantage because otherwise you, you're really just going to see a series of set scenes. I mean, I was filling in all the missed scenes al along the way. Maybe you were too, you know, from what you know. And then you realise, oh, there's a, there's a lot here. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking, hmm, it's not long enough, this film. And that was the first thing I said to the yeah. the usherette when I came out. I bored them. I said, do you know I haven't been to the cinema for 12 years? And yeah, or something <laughs> like that. I said, do you know? You know, I'm like sort of whistling old, f I'm really hamming it up. I said, oh, yes, it's interesting. And and I came here. Isn't that, isn't that marvellous? You know, like some old fogey. It was really I good. I came here when it was first built. Don't yes, you know? when it was first built. I, me and my family have been coming here since 1911, you know. My grandfather <laughs> built this. Did he? No, not really. I mean, there was just on the on the thing about the cinema as well. At the, It is very old, and of course, and they've retained much of the original architecture in there. Don't worry, listeners, we'll get away from architecture in a minute, but I want to just cover this bit. <laughs> and, you know, so from the street, you you look through this sort of uh, arcade, which is really good, and 
right at the end of this arcade, which is about 20 feet long, so you come off the street through a sort of half street, half cinema place, and then into the cinema itself, there's an old wooden ticket booth. It's marvellous. Really, it is. Absolutely marvellous. Now, when I, when I went there 11 or 12 years ago, we got our tickets from the... T- well, where would you get them from? That's where you think you're going to get them from. So I roll up expecting to see the ticket booth lady... I'm not being sexist. It was always a lady when I went. It could have been a bloke, but I'm expecting the ticket booth lady, a bit like Margaret Rutherford, who was issuing tickets in that British black and white movie about those... Anyway, I'm whispering on again. So I'm expecting to see Margaret Rutherford. And if you don't know who Margaret Rutherford is, probably for the best at the moment. Wonderful actress, though. And um, so there's no one there. Absolutely no one there. And I said... So I went. I said, "This is a bit disappointing." I said, "I can't buy a ticket." He said, "Oh no, you can you can go through there and buy a ticket with the sweeties or the confectionery or whatever." So you go and buy a digital ticket and they scan it. But the old ticket booth, Maleficus, was just fabulous because um, it was the old like bus tickets, cinema tickets. You get them out and then a bloke could clip it and there'd be all those clipping droppings all over the place, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, yeah, I thought, yeah, I really am becoming permanently nostalgized or something. I'm going to get. Well, it's, it's, uh, I think it was it's a, it was a it was a step backwards for them to give you a ticket or sell you a ticket and you get to the door and they tear the ticket in half. I think you know I've just paid for that. <laughs> what have you ruined it for? <laughs> you bloody ruined that, you know, absolutely. So, um, but um, let, let's have a look at a little bit at this film and see what it's about. So, I, I think you are absolutely right in your assessment that it's really about his life. And, of course, the other thing I would say on a negative criticism is that although the relationship between him and Josephine is, to some degree, romantically misrepresented, it's actually made to be slightly more than it was, in my view. And also, it occupies too much time in the whole of the running time. Uh, although absolutely. I know... Absolutely. It doesn't it? Um, yeah. Uh, and I was expecting that because I'd heard interviews with Scott talking about it. Um, and in fact, this extended version that they're planning to release on TV, which is going to be four hours, and the, the director's cut, they've said is even more of that. I'm going, no, 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 I want a lot less of that. <laughs> I need it balancing out. It's not sort of like a soap opera. And um, uh, I mean, I don't know if you know, I mean, the, the real relationship between them was really all one-way traffic, in truth. Although she came to actually become in love with him after several years but at the beginning uh he was like a hobby to her um he was i mean he wrote letters to her every day of his life every day and i think on average throughout his entire life another thing not really covered within the film or even suggested was the volume of letters he wrote i think it's about 15 letters per day every day of his life not just to her Oh, I, I love you at 10 o'clock in the morning. I just had to send you another letter. <laughs> you know, I still love you. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That would drive anybody bug batty crazy. But now he was a prolific is not the word for it, is it? This is almost, no. you know, Charles Emphatic. Dickens levels of ink. He must have yeah. gone through gallons. I mean, they must have had a special horse with him that just carried the ink and the paper so that he could fire these things off when they're on these campaigns. I think about terribly tedious, minute things like that. Um, but yes, um, so I'm, yeah, you, you thought, I guess you thought I, that I, the romance bit was a bit too top heavy in the time department. There was just too much time spent on it. I absolutely. Felt. I mean, and you know, it's, it's not one of those, it's not one of those epic movies that a school would pay for tickets for the class to go and see, because really there's very little educational value in the entire film, I mm-hmm. would say. 
Yes. Um, there are all, all right. You've got the beginning with the Battle of Toulouse. You know when they storm the storm the fort and then you know and then take on the British fleet from the fort and everything. That yeah. was fantastic. Really brilliantly done. Um, and it's a shock and, at the beginning, isn't it? That first the death of that animal and things like that that's that really yes. gets it's like yeah because i i thought yes that's what i'm expecting to see that's what it would have been like it would have been yes. like that that's what it was like yeah yeah, yeah really I bad mean, yeah war, warfare back in those days i mean and we're only talking a couple of hundred years ago realistically mm-hmm. um, warfare back in those days was hor- i mean it's horrific as it is now but it's far more clinical now Mm-hmm. than it was back in those days there it there was blood and guts everywhere mm-hmm. in those days um but no i mean the, the film itself unless you're aware of because there's there's none of you know, he becomes emperor and then there's there's none of what occurred across europe none of it the battles with spain yeah do you know what i mean there's absolutely none of <laughs> well, it. i know and what suddenly, you mean mate <laughs> where's spain i'm going what, what yeah, happened to spain the, and portugal bloody old spain go absolutely yeah. right yeah and then as i but as i'm having this criticism scarper through my head i'm going he couldn't possibly fit it in i mean i think what no, he's he done is brilliant really i do i know he's got loads of shortcomings and other french are sick as parrots about it i don't blame them i can understand that too everybody's right with their opinions but when I came out and talked to the guy and it was boring him to death about, oh, I used to be here as early young and all that nonsense, I said to him, I said, you know what the problem, I said, that was good, but there's a problem with it. He said, what's that? I said, it's about, uh, it needs to be about four or five times longer. I said, actually, that wouldn't be long enough either. And really, I suppose, not that I'm in charge or I've got the money or whatever, and, and it probably isn't a project that Scott himself would be interested in. But, you know, they now make these TV series, don't they, at a high production level, almost movie production level. And seriously, it's the sort of thing, if you're covering 30 years of this guy's life, right, not a tobacconist in Totnes, right, not that I've got anything against them, right, but, you know, it's a generally repetitive sort of life. This guy's life is off the charts. It's one of the most astonishing lives that we know of. Um, uh and you have to get that across, and you can't get it across in two hours and forty-seven minutes. It's not. You won't get it across in four hours either. No. Um, and then you end up with lots of know-it-alls in the audience, like you and me, possibly going, "Oh, this is <laughs> where the bloody yeah. Spain." <laughs> you know. That's, yeah. Yeah. Where's Spain? Hang on a minute. He didn't leave Egypt for his missus. No. no nothing of the sort. No, no, he didn't. I mean, and and you know, if you want to get into sort of that kind of thing, I mean, an, another guy. I mean, I know we're concentrating on Napoleon, but. Another guy that really threw a spanner in the works for Napoleon, and who who also led an equally interesting life, would have been Nelson, Admiral Nelson, yes. know, Battle of Trafalgar, etc. But originally Nelson of the Nile. The reason Nelson, or shall I say, the reason Napoleon left Egypt, is because the British had just destroyed his fleet on the Nile, and he was thinking, well, I better get out of here before uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> before anything else happens. Um, whereas the film insinuates that it was because his missus was having an affair and he'd uh, he settle accounts later you know <laughs> yes absolutely absolutely i mean i i was expecting all of this so i didn't get disappointed or cross i didn't go in thinking oh i'm i'm off to see a historically accurate completely comprehensive timeline i just knew i wasn't going to see that and there yeah. were, but there were certain things that they did that were a bit silly i i mean the battle in Egypt is nowhere near the pyramids. They could see them from a distance, you know. There I am, being nerdy. But I think these yes. things are important. 
Because it's a bit like, let's tart the film up with these well-known landmarks. Well, you can do that. And so you see, there's a brilliant bit about him that's not even covered. And, and this aspect of his character is not really addressed in the film at all. When they went to Egypt, he took 160 scientists with him. 160, right? These are the first scientists ever to be towed around at the back end of an army. Come on, we're off to Egypt, you lot, down there, the ac academy or whatever it was called, you're coming with me. Let's go and learn some stuff while we're out there. Seriously. And they laid the groundwork for archaeological digs. They, they were the first ones ever, you know. So he's, he's changed things in a way that is not, you will not sense at all from the film. And that's because his life's too big. It's just everything. And so you, you can't cover it in that way. And, yeah, the Egyptian thing was a bit irritating because, obviously, a key aspect of the discoveries there was the discovery of the Rosetta Sun. And then its, yes. trans its subsequent translation by Champollion, which has changed the world in terms of our understandings of Scripture and of other ancient historic texts. What they did there, I mean, there was, a, there was a British guy, by the way, that worked with Champollion who was never mentioned, but was equally responsible for doing the work. And I, I haven't got his name to mind right now. But those guys, by, by taking that stone, which an officer, a French officer found it, said, oh, look what I found. <laughs> oh, that's interesting, René. Um, yeah, we better get that cleaned up and that might come in useful, you know. And um, I wish they'd touched a little bit on that. I mean, the little scene they had with him with the mummy was just a bit facile, to be quite honest. He was daft. Yeah, I, but I did find it hilarious because yeah, he was on tiptoes at first and then and they put a box so he could actually stand up and be head high I with, know, the, with I the, know. the shrunken mummy. I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe that was a little in-joke. I mean, because historically, any old ex-British schoolboys out there, and maybe not even British ones, but certainly we were all taught, I know my dad was taught, oh, he's very short, you know. He was a little, you know, he's a little twerp. That was how Napoleon was talked about. But he wasn't. For his time, he was five foot seven. For his time, he was of average height. I understand. But the reason why he got that reputation is that his personal bodyguard, they were big lads. <laughs> they were yeah. big. So they were all six foot six. You know, th that would be huge for those days. That, I mean, that yeah, really well, would be have, massive. They still yeah. have the saying nowadays, don't they? Napoleon syndrome for little people with big attitudes. Yeah. I wouldn't mind having it, man. I won't mind a bit of Napoleon syndrome. Seriously, there's something. Um, I'm serious. Well, I must get some Mr. Napoleon English, tablets. Mr. English, you really need to work on your Napoleon syndrome. I, maybe I do. Can I go down and see the trick cyclist to get my brain analysed? But uh, yeah, maybe they'll start issuing Napoleon tablets, Maleficus, and we can we can get a bit of that attitude because, on a positive side of it, I as I'm watching all the battle scenes, I'm not on anybody's side except the side of all all of the soldiers this is all i'm seeing on all the sides how absolutely, absolutely astonishingly courageous they are really oh man you cannot you cannot put into word i mean there is nobody left like that in britain i would say nowadays no very few people have got the balls mm. it would take to stand form a, you know with with uh, a, a platoon of musketeers forming a square when they're charged at cavalry and then fanning out again into a long line to deal with the infantry that comes in afterwards and then back into a square and that, uh, absolute mm -hmm. carnage. I've sent you actually a little bit of footage. I don't know whether you want to play it, but it's, it's of testimony from a guy who was at the Battle of Waterloo on the British side. 
Right. Where did um, you send that to me? Is that on Skype? I sent it? it. I sent it to you in Skype. It's about three and a half minutes long, something like that. I've snipped it up and I've just taken some of the best bits of, of what the chap had to say. Okay. But all right, I can see that. Idea. Yeah. L- let me. Uh, yeah, we'll we'll run that. I'll just just give me a few minutes. I'll make sure all the switches are in the right place. Absolutely. Yeah. But the it's it's very interesting. I stumbled across something about half an hour. I didn't have time before we we went on air here looking at that kind of stuff and your observation about the resilience of the people of the time is true and um yet there are all sorts of factors you know here i am wriggling my way out of why i'm not (laughs) that guy but there are colossal factors i mean you know one of the things that occurs to me is that everything in the movie is as fat the fastest thing in the movie is a horse except when it's been blown up right and that does happen a lot because a lot of horses got blown up in this thing and um so everybody's walking or riding a horse. Most of them are walking all over the place, like huge distances, nonstop. I mean, and it's well, that. Well, France to Russia is no mean feat. Let's put it that way. Oh, excuse I don't. You, well, you're not inviting me on a walk, are you, next week or something? I mean, you know, we, excuse the pun. <laughs> no mean feat. <laughs> yes, yeah, you're a bit too witty for me today. I'm not. I thought you were but, quicker than that. No, I'm very, very slow. I, I don't want to catch. I don't want to encourage you too much. It's all going to get slightly out of hand. But um, no, you, you're right. I mean, would we consider having a good old jaunt? Come on, we go for a walk down to Moscow. Fancy? I mean, I don't know how long it is. Yeah, yeah, it's I'll give it a go. Miles. Oh, because at one point in the film, they said, "Oh, well, Moscow's only 200 miles away," and it's just like. You've got to walk that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was that's the other thing. Because uh, I've read um, uh, a few bits and bobs on Napoleon. And there was one book that I mentioned to you before we came on air, which was, uh, it's anyone can get hold of it. I believe it's still on Amazon now. It's still in print. And it's called Voices from the Past, uh, 1815 Waterloo. And one of the things that, and, and the book consists of newspaper clippings and literally diaries and testimonies written after the time mm-hmm. that were all um some guy who was trying to put a battle scene together for the british museum he'd been commissioned to put a battle scene together f- you know uh for the british museum in wellington's time they wanted yep. it, you know, so as a result he put out adverts in newspapers to get eyewitness testimonies and this that and the other and a lot of that still remains And one of the things that astounded me, absolutely astounded me, really was the logistical nightmare Mm -hmm. of having to transport thousands of men across such vast distances. Uh, They didn't have like, you know, I mean, we we all know what problems um, the Third Reich had with supplying their troops. And they had aircrafts and things like that. They did. Um, you know, uh, so back in those days, you know, the, what a logistical nightmare it was just to transport ammunition, food. They would have to get food from the surrounding areas, which is which is obviously when they they ran into trouble with with you know, when they were when Napoleon was, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, pursuing the Russians towards Moscow. They 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 uh, in, enforced a scorched earth policy, so it was very difficult for them to feed the troops and everything on the what a logistical nightmare in those days i mean even nowadays that sheer volume of men yeah but in do you those think we're days, showing our age you know i'm i'm fascinated with the logistics if you talk to me at 15 <laughs> what are you talking about but now i'm going how did they actually even get to the battlefield to f- why were they not tired when they got there? i'm thinking things like this i mentioned yeah, well, actually the- yeah sorry 
I was going to say, a lot of the testimonies in that book, yeah. um, as I say, I can str- highly recommend that book. It's a brilliant book. A lot of the testimonies in that book talk about how they were starving on the way and they were taking whatever they could from villages that they were coming past. And this, you know, the, the, the general populace did not fare well, you know, from any army passing mm-hmm. through, whether they yeah. were a friendly one or not. Um, there was even talk at one point... Uh, Actually, it's a fascinating. I'll, I'll mention it now. I could leave it till later, but I'll mention it now because it's in that book. There's a fascinating account of um, uh, a lot of looting taking place, and a group of guys thought they'd discovered a barrel of brandy, which they couldn't find a a, a tap to, to to smack into the barrel itself. Mm-hmm. So one guy used his pistol and shot a hole in it with three or four guys gathered around with their cantinas not to, so as not to spill any. It turned out to be a barrel of flipping gunpowder. The whole lot went up. Really? You know? uh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and this is all anecdotal stuff that was written at the time. So, yeah, uh, yeah I, I can't recommend that book enough. It's really well worth a read. No, I've lent my copy out and I haven't had it back. Otherwise, oh, I'll be come quoting back. from it right now. It'll come back. The p- person's probably wriggling somewhere in the ethers thinking, I must send that book back to me. <laughs> so. By the way, just a, as a shout-out, you're listening to Paul English Live here on WBN324. I'm going to play this little thing and then we'll be back after this little blurb. Here we go. Oh, no. We're not going to do it because you know what I've done? I do this all the time. I lower, I lower the tone of things. I keep turning the volume down. Here we go. After this, take two. Attention all listeners. Are you seeking uninterrupted access to WBN 324 Talk Radio despite incoming censorship hurdles? Well, it's a breeze. Just grab and download Opera Browser, then type in WBN324.ZIL. And stay tuned for unfiltered discussions around the clock. That's WBN324.ZIL. The views, opinions, and content of the show hosts and their guests appearing on the World Broadcasting Network are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of its owners partners and other hosts or this network thank you for listening to wbn 324 talk radio welcome back but brief see short and sweet you're listening to paul english live here every thursday on wbn and i'm joined here this evening with by joined by my guest tonight no my co-host is maleficus scott maleficus welcome back after that that wonderful interruption there so we were talking about logistics we're talking about the life of napoleon we're talking about the film at the moment there's a lot more that we're going to uh, touch upon but we're talking about the film one of the things that you were just mentioning there logistically you know and we were talking about all this walking yeah. around i think i mentioned this a couple of weeks ago one of the books i've got is uh, in russia with napoleon by general Kolinkor. he was in the film you'll remember him in the film Kolinkor conducts a negotiation with alexander the first later on because yes. Kolinkor was sent and became very good friends with Alexander and was advising Napoleon all the time. Well, Kolinkor went into Russia and came out with him alive, obviously, and wrote this stuff. And he was as prolific a writer as Napoleon. It's an astonishing book to read. It really is, because you feel, when you're in the dialogue scenes, as if you're actually sat with them in the office. It's a brilliant piece of writing. It really is. One of the points he made out, this is just on the logistic thing, before they'd even fought a battle, they have to, you know, there's 640,000 of them, and they've got to get to Poland. Well, he, they, they go to Poland so fast... Everybody, a lot of people get exhausted. Some die just from marching too quickly. And they lost 10,000 horses just getting to Poland. 
They hadn't fought anybody. Just, yeah. oh. You know, and you think, 10,000 horses. It's a lot. You know, I don't know what the population levels of Europe were in the European countries, but um, obviously not not as swollen and as engorged with all the, anyway, <laughs> people as it is right now. But, you know, <laughs> that's a serious bit of horsage to lose. You know, where would the horse-keeping a- society, they'd be rather furious. About, I mean, it's just 10,000 out for a gallop to Poland, obviously, and just wore them out. But, uh, yeah. uh, and, and there's bits, anyway, Colin Cole saying, you've got to stop, right? You're gonna, they're all going to break. You can't keep moving at this speed. Because, obviously, his, his entire, the fact is that he won practically every battle he fought. Borodino is classed, he classed it as a victory, but it wasn't really. It was a draw. I think the French losses were lower than the Russian losses, but it really just put an end to everything, did that that battle. And, um, it, you know, his tactics, if you're into all that kind of thing, were based on speed, absolute massive speed in comparison to the way the other armies moved. That was the one of the fundamentals and all these mini core systems. He had all these little mini armies all zooming around at speed, able to trap these more light, larger and unwieldy forces which couldn't move or react as quickly. So in, in simple terms, I'm not a military tactician. I don't intend to become one. And probably military tacticians just listened to me and said, thank God for that. But, you know... Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's definitely part of it. Also, let's talk about Austerlitz. Now, f- listeners, if you're not familiar, Austerlitz, the Battle of Austerlitz, is reckoned to be his, his sort of masterpiece of military command and tactical execution and overwhelming victory, everything. And in fact, I think the bit in the film where he said to Alexander afterwards, oh, that guy, the Austrian guy, you know, you need the to Austrian thank me because yeah. I could have I completely wiped you out today. This is true. That's absolutely true. He could have done that. And um, and yet, the actual battle sequence for Austerlitz, impressive though it is, is as far from the truth as it's it could absolute be. absolute load of waffle. I couldn't... My dad now, looked now. at me and said... My, even my dad looked at me and said, what is I don't this? remember anything about being a frozen lake at Austerlitz. <laughs> no, there wasn't. There was an escape route for... There was an escape route for certain divisions, I think... On the southern part of the battlefield, just geographically, for one, let's not get into all this too much, but there was a, a, a lot of them got trapped there, and they had to escape. So the, the French were basically driving them south or southeast, and there was a river, and some of them drowned in the river. Now, they exaggerated the numbers because, obviously, you know, propaganda was in full flow then as well. It took mainly the form of these wonderful paintings of Napoleon looking amazing, you know. Uh, going across the Alps on a horse, whereas in fact he actually went across on a donkey, which is not as glorious looking. And you wouldn't have that wonderful, you wouldn't have that wonderful painting, which today's image is taken from. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. But uh, yeah, the propaganda was that yeah, hundreds of them died and blah blah. blah. Well, it was about three, about three, you know, three guys died in, the, in this lake that broke through, or they got carried away by the water. But nevertheless, and maybe you see in film, how do you actually? detail the tactical maneuvering it's way too complex i don't know how you would even be able to communicate that in film without lots of without a narrator i mean i just don't say you'd be looking at things moving around and you wouldn't be able to work out why are they doing that why is he going down there like this you know it's really in in retrospect that you you see these sorts of things but um uh yeah so Anyway, yeah, that I said, mean, it's a very it, impressive scene, but it's just not true, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, well, that's the thing is, as as I as I said to my dad afterwards, it's it's one it it's such a generalized, sweeping, generalized sort of synopsis of his yep. life, with lots of unnecessary sort of 
slow-mo, long-winded Lord of the Rings type scenes that, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, they could have put all three films in one film if they'd have just done without the slow-mo nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think really pretty much because, because addressing everything that Napoleon did, you, as you say, you could not fit into a two-hour, uh, let's call it a three-hour film. You could not fit that into a three-hour film. No. So which bits do you pick? I guess you just pick him as the person and the things that he uh, felt passionate about. And I suppose if you're going to make a Hollywood movie, then the main thing you're going to be passionate about is a love interest and having an heir, etc., mm-hmm. etc., which is largely what the film is about. Um, you know, one of the things that you know, obviously when he was asked to uh, step down the first time and they, they, they gave him full so- sovereignty of the island of Elbe, yes. which you know, he, he embraced, he took it all in his stride and worked wonders with Elbe. Um, but it was down to um, a politician from France visiting him and saying, you know, you ought to come back, monsieur. You know, uh, it's ripe for you coming back. Mm-hmm. And... Not forgetting, and this features very heavily in the film as well, the impact of the press. Yes. The impact of the press in the film mm-hmm. shows shows how that the press were ridiculing Napoleon. Mm-hmm. But you also have to concede the fact of, um, well, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into parts of the, the French Revolution and stuff at, at, at some point throughout this, but um, you also have to concede the fact that how was public opinion swayed in France if there weren't any such things as newspapers? You know, back in the day, it would have been the peasants talking amongst themselves. Um, and yeah. so, yeah, his his return to power, I think, for me, rings some alarm bells and some string pulling. I think there's a lot going on. Yeah, I mean, when he went to, now is it Egypt? It may have been. He set up a newspaper, you know. He used to set up newspapers. <laughs> That's not covered. Well, that rings, Napoleon goes, that rings alarm bells as well. Yeah, and he would set them up know, to, to communicate back to people all over the place. The whole of the Egyptian campaign is really interesting because he, he presented himself as a friend of them, and this worked really, really well. I mean, there is... Well, he took a leaf out of St. Francis Drake's book then, obviously, mm-hmm. because this, you know... Obviously, mm-hmm. the only person that St. Francis Drake had an issue with was the Spanish. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I suppose standing back, you know, the, the bit, even the bit that you see, the problem, well, not the problem, but I understand why the beginning with Marie Antoinette was the way it was. Uh, but the, the script, the actual on-screen uh, text, was inaccurate. Um, the, as I've been droning on about here, the French Revolution is not a French Revolution. Uh-uh. It's not. And uh, Marie Antoinette was not despised until the machinations of the intriguers had worked their hellish magic, as it were, upon the crowd to such a degree that it came to that. But that wasn't how she was perceived at all. Nor the king. The king, the king Louis XVI, um, his great downfall is his great strength, but it's also his downfall, was that he he loved and absolutely trusted the people of France with his own life. And you can see what happened to it. But uh, one of the there's an attack, part of the uh, French level, revolution is where there's um, an attack on the 
I think it's pronounced the Tuileries. It's um, an old palace. I don't know whether it still exists, actually. Uh, it, it may well do, so I'm showing my ignorance there. But it was the residence in Paris of, uh, of the king. And uh, they attack it. And there's, I was just reading this only the other day. I read it before I went to see the film, actually, just to get another sense of it. Um, and Napoleon has come into the script. This is in Nesta Webster's book, talking about the crowd that marched on it. And, and there's 20,000, it's 30,000. And Napoleon was there, said, no, it's about 5,000. I'm going to go with him, right? <laughs> I really am. And um, because it's exag exaggeration was key. They were trying to project the idea into the minds of all the Parisians that you're all rebelling, aren't you? And you all hate this guy and all the, and none of them did. And there's a, you see, this would make for a magical, you need a film really just about the French Revolution, but told from the perspectives that Webster supplies, for example, and she's not alone. Um, yeah. And what she said, there's a scene where, and the courage of these people is just all of them that are defending the King. You just go, wow, top bloke. Um, the king's done nothing except help the country, but in their minds, because they've been lied to viciously for three, four years, the rebel rousers are always saying that he has. We've got to kill him, right? I mean, it's just a... It's a uh, to call it an injustice is not even touching it, really. It's hellish. It's completely wrong. Anyway, they march, and they confront, they confront and find the king before them, this huge mob, and they all just... In Webster's account, they just stop. They're gobsmacked. They don't know what to do. He's just smiling at them. It's totally disarming. <laughs> they don't know what to do at all. They just look at him and go, oh, you're great. <laughs> Literally, that's kind of what's going on in the crowd. They're going, this guy's all right. And somebody says, he's not bad. I mean, literally, that's what happened. They were going to kill him and rip him apart. I mean, they do in the end, of course. I'm sorry if, if I've ruined it and, you know, for everybody, but I think you all probably know that anyway. Um, and then for three or four hours, this mob that's going in and out of its mood is haranguing him and the people around him protecting him. He sat on a windowsill, Louis XVI, just saying the French people will never hurt me. And in the end, they go away on this particular particular event and it's the same there's a there was a previous scene i'd mentioned here a few weeks ago with marie antoinette uh where they're out at versailles this was prior to this maybe a year a couple of years prior to this event because it's a whole series of revolutionary ebbs and flows before they finally crack it and this alien force which is really what it is destroys you know the the, the french monarchy and there's a, a bit there where they were chasing her and her children through the palaces and she finally comes out onto this balcony about five o'clock in the morning in the moonlight and the whole of the crowd just went silent they didn't know what to do she was she was beautiful, apparently. She never said any of those things about cake. This is just all completely made up crap. And uh, you get a, you know, like everything, as you well know, Maleficus, the, the front-end publicity for events, this is happening right now today, is not hardly ever what has actually really taken place. Um, everything is used for manipulation purposes, very effectively, I have to say, and tragically enough for us. But that was the case there. And... Uh, you know, there's uh, Mike King, the guy that has the website Tomato Bubble. Actually, he did. I think that that went down the drain, didn't it? And I'm unfortunately, I don't know the name of his new site. So my apologies, Mike, if you're listening or catch this uh, or whatever. But um, he uh, wrote some stuff. He wrote a very good booklet on Napoleon, which is very much worth reading, I would suggest. And he's he's touching upon that entire period prior to the French Revolution. Um, which is a backdrop, really, to the arrival of Napoleon. 
and you would be familiar with this as well, obviously in 1776 is quite a year because in America you have mm-hmm. the United States get rid of George the Third, is it, or second, or whichever one it was. Um, you know, they win their war of independence, supposedly. Uh, according to Cornwallis, they were never going to win it. Um, and uh, subsequent events are probably proving that because of the manic tentacles of the banking system. Um, but you've got that going on over there. And in Europe, you've got the arrival of the Illuminati, Adam Weishaupt, the ex-Jesuit but Jewish priest, uh, beginning the Illuminati. That's in 1776. So that's 14 years, 12 or 14 years before all this nonsense. And their hand is in it. This is, you know, Illuminism was apparently disbanded. Uh, yeah, right. And uh, it, it isn't because all of the tactics, all of the destructive force of the, of the so-called French Revolution is really the tactics of Illuminism done through the Jacobin Club in, in France. I mean, there were hundreds of Jacobin clubs. They had the main one in Paris, but hundreds of them. And they're, they're basically the beginning of wokeism, <laughs> globalism, world revolutionary movement. You know, it, that's where you see it. Um, so it's, it, and they got hold of the of the Rus- of the French people, just like they got hold of the F- Russian people a couple of hundred years later, and yeah. and wrecked the place, wrecked it, you know. Yeah, yeah, they did. Yeah, they did. Well, they've done the same all over the world. I mean, going back to my granddad's book, he he talks about um, what was in the protocols of the learned elders of Zion, and, and it gives a timeline. Yeah, uh, starting in four. 429 bc yeah you know uh so 429 bc in greece we're at the time of uh pericles uh, the snakes started eating into the power of that country second yes. stage about 69 bc in rome in the time of augustus third stage ad 1552 in madrid the inquisition fourth stage about 1790 in paris the French mm-hmm. Revolution. So, yeah. you know, uh, I can read out the rest. It goes up to the ninth stage. If you want me to list, list them now, I may as well. Um, fifth stage in London from 1814 onwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, sixth stage in Berlin from 1871 onwards, the Prussian mm-hmm. menace. Yeah. Seventh stage in St. Petersburg, over which is drawn the head of the snake under the date 1881. He's referring to a map that came with the learned elders. Uh, right. Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. Okay. Eighth stage in 1905 from Russia onwards up to 1917, yes. the Russian Revolution or the yeah. anti-Russian Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says here, all the states which the snake has traversed have had the foundations of their constitutions shaken. Arrows indicate the head of the snake moving on to Moscow, Kiev and Odessa. Uh, it is well known... Uh, it is well known to what extent the latter cities are centres of militant Jewry, it says here. And then it says, ninth stage, Constantinople to Jerusalem, i.e. Palestine. So, uh, yeah. you know, and I'm reading a book at the moment, which uh, I'll just touch on it briefly, about Gallipoli. And the guy that wrote the book, he was there in 1915. Anyone can find the book. It's by a guy called Arthur Beecroft. And it's just simply called Gallipoli. It's a fantastic read. And in it, he comments about how he remembers his granddad talking, because he's ta- throughout the book, he's talking to his son because he wants his son to know why he went to Gallipoli and blah, and what, you know, why they signed up yeah. um, and what occurred. And he, he points out to his son in the book that a uh, hundred years before, uh, 
Arthur Beecroft's grandfather, he remembers his grandfather talking about the glory days of the Napoleonic Wars and how a hundred years before they'd been protecting the same patch of land with the Turks Mm -hmm. from the French. And now a hundred years later, there's Arthur Beecroft protecting or or attacking that patch of land with the French against the Turks. Oh, how the wheel turns, Mr. English. Yeah, it does. It's that agitating force, you know. I know it's glib to say divide and conquer, but that's in simple essence that's what it is. And it's a uh, people can be manipulated into positions purely because of well economic threats, you know. I mean, that was a thing that's obviously missing from the film. By the way, just a quick shout out to Sussex man. I was stumbling there a few minutes ago, referencing Mike King and his old site Tomato Bu- Bubble. Thank you, Sussex man. His actual new channel is Real History Channel, and it's worth going over to. And Mike, I spoke to ooh, four or five years ago and he was kind enough to send me an awful lot of his pdf books at the time the one on napoleon is excellent because he has this great ability does mike of synthesizing things down to a very fast read and i think that that's useful then if your appetite is massively wetted and you want to really plow into the detail then there are obviously a whole range of books on napoleon a uh, hundred and seventy-five thousand maleficus more books written on him than practically anybody i, I learned that from jeremy iron the other day by watching a, 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 a documentary on Napoleon but about 2018 um, about his use of art as propaganda he's this guy is competent beyond belief I mean, he's really he's he's like he operates on every single level of understanding what he's up to and uh, the other parallel I would suggest although I need to keep talking about this, it's not a straight-up parallel, but there is a lot of commonality with regards to the flow of his life and the flow of Adolf Hitler's. In that, although this is not... Of course, we wouldn't ever be sold that idea here in the UK, heaven forbid, but when you look at what he was doing, and in his own mind, Napoleon was fighting a series of defensive wars against multiple alliances his entire life, basically. So, uh, even before he was emperor, you know, f- right through to 1815 and the Waterloo uh, s- scenario, yeah, all the time, from when he's he's brought in, you know, the siege at Toulon, as you were mentioning earlier, and all that's his life. He's at war. The other thing that's astonishing about him, another key part is he's out there fighting with his men all the time. Yes. He's out yeah. there on the horse doing it. He had bad piles, apparently, you know. So you won't wish that on anybody. Um, and um, although I should imagine it was a common, it was probably quite common. All that sitting in that saddle for weeks. Good grief! So um, you know, but he was out there. So he was made of extremely tough stuff. And I think you know, Corsica is where he came from, from an Italian family. This is not mentioned too much, but it is. He's of Italian descent. Raised in Corsica, which had been taken over by the French. His father had allied with the French. He was very pleased to do that. It wasn't sort of too hostile or horrible, I don't think. There may have been a few... I think it was a bit of scrappage before that. And I love the way the Italians say his name. It's Napoleone, which is... I quite like that. You know, I quite... I, quite, I just do. Yep. Sorry, I think it's got a ring to it. Napoleone. Uh, so it's, it's, you know, it's interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, the, well, the British did refer to him as a Corsican thug. Well, they would have to, wouldn't they? As opposed of to a British thug, you know, as opposed yes. to a, bank, a city of Bank of London thug. 
the worst thugs <laughs> of them all, right? So they would have to refer to that, you know. So I would have gladly had him marching here as long as he would have strung those bastards up. I'm serious. I mean, that's really what's yeah, needed. Then, uh, yeah, but then, uh, you know, all wars are bankers' wars, and, and Napoleon required <laughs> funding as well. I, so let's, did let's, he? Let's, <laughs> let's, let's not go too far into that. Maybe, but I believe it was the same family line no, that was no. funding both sides, wasn't it? No, you're making this up. No, it would never be like that. You have a good bank and a bad bank, and they all hate one another. Because I saw it in a movie once, Malefica, so it must be true, right? Yeah, yeah, right. (laughs) There were so many scenes that, you know, I'm sat here thinking of just bucket loads of things that could be in that movie. I was, I I actually thought, the only bit that, that I wasn't happy about, the bit I was wanting to see was the retreat from Moscow where they have to cross the Beretzina River, which is just... If you read the account of that, you can't believe that they did it. It's one of these things you go, what? I may have mentioned it in passing briefly here, and I'm only going to mention it briefly again, but on their retreat from Moscow, so they've been depleted from 640,000. Now, by this stage, they're down to about 80,000. And they have to, they're trapped on this river, the Berezina River. And Marshal Ney turns to one of his other generals or whatever and says, if he gets us out of this, he surely is the devil, and he gets them out of it. So I don't know if he really was the devil, but they have to cross this water in this in freezing water. I mean, I don't know what it was. And uh, they lo- the men were allowed to go into the water for 15 minutes to build this pontoon over about six, 800 yards to get everybody off. They built one 12 foot wide, 800 yards long or 400 yards long, something like that, in about eight hours carpenters swimming in this river being pulled out some of them died from hypothermia uh, not because they stayed in too long but 15 minutes was too long for some of them and they got away so you know we were talking about the resilience the physical resilience and endurance not just of them but of the russians of all these people at this time of life on the planet in europe it's uh, it is off the charts compared to where we're at right now and i guess maybe because all of them were living outdoor lives the huge bulk of people would have been working on farms dealing with horses all the time you know uh, they would have had calloused hands strong feet and legs because they lived on them and um that was the way it was so yeah. it's still though astonishing to to look at this um uh, and to see these things and of course there's a bit of me while I, I don't know about you but whilst i'm watching these battle scenes i couldn't help but i'm sort of tearing up inside i, I know you all think i'm probably wet but i do because i'm just looking at this sort of there's a bit after a while of seeing these battles you go this is just mad <laughs> you just realize it's completely mad although maybe you know i've heard some of the reports from the british troops at the time they just couldn't wait to get out there they think it's great and i remember maybe i'd have been like that maybe you would have you go bloody hell getting off this farm at least i don't care if i die at least i get to go and kill some maybe that's how we all thought back then you know it was dreadful but it, uh, it was more about um you know looking after the brotherhood it was looking after your brotherhood of man looking after you know it's like arthur beecroft said back in 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 1915 he said if i did if i hadn't have signed up mm-hmm. well i would have just been a rotter yeah you know, i'm just this, not i'm not part of the team i'm not playing the game yes you know, because there was that sort of camaraderie back then, in, back in 1915. You know, you look now, 2015, mm-hmm. <laughs> most people would be like, well, you can sign up, mate, but I'm, I'm going to stay here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm all right, Jack, you know, uh, and th- that's very much the attitude nowadays. Yes. Um, it was, you know, like I say, it was it was just not the, 
wasn't the done thing. And not forgetting as well that um, certainly with the British Navy, I know that anyone that participated in battle was entitled to a share of the spoils. So certainly yep. that was the case with the British Navy in Nelson's time, which would have been you know, Napoleon's time as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know whether the same um, things were afforded for the army as well. But, uh, you know, as I say, uh, at some point, if you get around to playing that little clip of just, just the, the guy's testimony of, of what it was actually like to be in battle. I will. Uh, we'll it just do gives that. you a very, very brief, yes. uh, uh, barely eye-opening account. But, you know, you've got to I'll bring that over. I'll tell you what, we're at, we're at the top of the end of the first hour here, and I'm going to play. I just realized uh, that I needed to play a specific piece of music, which practically everybody will know. Um, it's by Tchaikovsky, and it's the 1812 Overture. I'm not going to play the whole <laughs> thing because it's 16 minutes long. Now, why am I playing it? Because the battle around which uh, the, the theme is inspired by, I can't really phrase I've not looked it up too much, but it's, the, it's Borodino, this great battle in Russia, after they've been drawn into Russia several hundred miles, and still a couple of hundred miles from Moscow. They have this uh, big, I think it was probably the biggest sort of on scale battle of the lot anyway uh here's the last you'll all know this but it seemed appropriate i'll probably never ever get a chance an appropriate chance to play it again so we're going to play this this is the last four minutes or so of the song and we'll be back with you after this you're listening to paul english live um here on wbn 324 now here's a bit of chaikovsky for you
the commencement, the commanding officer was killed by a musket shot, but his place was soon filled up. And even this much had unfortunately so frightened one of the young recruits of my company, named Bartram, who had never before been in action, and now did not like the curious evolutions of the shell so close to him, that he called out to me and said he must fall out of rank as he had taken very ill. I could easily see the cause of the illness, so I pushed him into rank again, saying, Why, Bartram, it's the smell of this little powder that's caused your illness. There's nothing else the matter with you. But that physic would not content him at all, and he fell down and would not proceed another inch. I was fearfully put out at this, but was obliged to leave him, for if he had had his due, he would have been shot. About ten o'clock the action of the day began at Hougamont on our right, and from there it fell on our centre, where we were attacked by a tremendous body of cavalry and infantry. The fire, however, which had been kept up for hours from the enemy's cannon, had now abated in that quarter, owing to the close unison of the two armies and from this time onward we endured some heavy work throughout the day, having constantly to be first forming square to receive the repeated attacks of their cavalry, and then line to meet their infantry, charge after charge being made upon us, but with very little success. On the left, on the turnpike road, was placed a brigade of German cavalry, with light horses and men. When Bonaparte's bodyguards came up, they charged these, making fearful havoc amongst their number. Still nothing daunted, they formed again, and this time ascended at us, but of the two, they met with a worse reception than before, for we instantly threw ourselves into three squares with our artillery in the centre, and the word having been given not to fire at the men, who wore armour, but at the horses, which was obeyed to the very letter. So, as soon as they arrived at close quarters, we opened a deadly fire, and very few of them wholly escaped. It was a most laughable sight to see these guards in their chimney armour trying to run away after their horses had been shot from under them. I think this quite settled Bonaparte's bodyguards, for we saw no more of them, they not having expected this signal defeat. That affair, however, had only passed off a very few minutes before their infantry advanced, and we had again to form line ready to meet them. We, in our usual style, let the infantry get well within our musket shot before the order was given to fire, so that our volley proved to be a fearful success. We did not lose a single inch of ground the whole day, though after these successive charges our numbers were fearfully thinned, and even during the short interval between each charge, the enemy's cannon had been doing some mischief among our ranks besides. The men in their tired state were beginning to despair, but the officers cheered them on continually through the day with the cry of, Keep your ground, my men! It is a mystery to me how it was accomplished, for at last so few were left that there was scarcely enough to form square. About four o'clock, I was ordered to the colours. This, although I was used to warfare as much as any, was a job I did not at all like. There had been before me that day fourteen sergeants already killed and wounded while in charge of those colours, with officers in proportion, and the staff and colours were almost cut to pieces. This job will never be blotted from my memory. I remember it as if it had been yesterday. I had not been there more than a quarter of an hour when a cannon shot came and took the captain's head clean off. This was again close to me, for my left side was touching the poor captain's right, and I was spattered all over with his blood. Well, that's some clip, isn't it? That's mm. some clip. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, there's a, there's, a bit more, there's a bit more to it. If you want to go onto YouTube and look it up, uh, there is a bit more to it than that. But uh, yeah, it just gives you the idea 
So, you know, he's he stood shoulder to shoulder with a guy who's just had his head blown off by a cannonball, for goodness sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he still held rank, you know? Wow. I mean, the only good thing about the guy that lost his head is it would have been pretty quick, I suppose, but I wasn't there. You kind of hope that it would be, but there's not, you know, of course, the film doesn't really sort of convey that. It does in parts, but not the sheer horror of it as much as I was expecting, to be quite honest. I was um, expecting a lot more horror and a lot mm. less artistry me of, too you know uh, <laughs> clever camera shots underwater with the water turning red and 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 cannonballs flying through ice and you know as i say um great spectacle but really didn't really do anything to convey the barbarity of war at that point well we'll just have to redo it won't we but as i said i think a tv series really would be the thing you just need so much more time to cover it i mean one of the thoughts i had before i I saw it as well was i didn't expect it to be as good as gladiator for the simple reason that i didn't know the story of gladiator neither did anybody else other than it's focused around a particular uh storyline which may or may not be true i don't really know it didn't really matter i thought it illustrated things really well so as a compact story against a huge background it worked brilliantly it's a fantastic film this is a very good film it's not as good as as gladiator it's probably a tedious film for people that can't fill the gaps in as we were mentioning before but i think it's just to do with the limitations of time um it it just needed an awful lot more minutes uh it's it's pretty obvious that as i said there's nothing about barrett scene a borodino is over in a flash really <laughs> it's a huge thing uh, waterloo yeah. similarly you're going you're, you're just you've got to cram too much into these things it's obviously built for a series not that anybody would probably want to do it i suppose there's maybe not too much demand for it but uh, um it struck me that that was the case you know then there's the whole scene with the code napoleon his planting of trees and the laying of roads all over france this focus of his to actually you know protect france for what it was but i thought i mean i don't know whether they mentioned it too much you'll have to tell me the theme was that or maybe this is just i'm confusing my reading with the film that let's just go back to this french revolution thing so that that revolution really is the new world order making itself known that's what i'm going to suggest right i think that that's what it is this is that jesuit illuminati thing this is what it is. This is this free. This is perversion in terms of the Jacobin clubs and all of those things in general terms. That's what it is, and out of that, they then get the reign of terror with Robespierre, which is completely out of hand. Every, you all be very pleased that Robespierre got guillotined himself, because, and he deserved it. There's no two ways about well, it. They were just they were just using the guillotine as a mm. means of crushing any type type of opposition, no matter what anyone said. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I think that was seized upon by, you know, quite a few folks, and eventually, as you say, Robespierre ended up be having his his own head cut off with the guillotine yeah. that he so loved. Yes, absolutely, and of course, it's the same thing. It's echoed then down the line in Russia, with the slaughtering of the intelligentsia, the intellectuals, as it were, or the intelligent middle classes, for exactly the same reasons. So they they're killing some. I think they guillotine something like twenty seven thousand, twenty five, twenty. 7,000, 40,000 died. This is men, women, and children from the aristocracy. That is the skilled, the intelligent managers of their civilization, which when you read about the way that Louis XVI was running it, there weren't any problems until these people turned up and decided to create problems which the king was then going to be blamed for. Nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun with this stuff. Absolutely. Um, 
you know, uh, and then Napoleon comes along, and this is Mike King's take, um, and I like this take as well. He, he's basically he was fighting both. He was fighting the New World Order in the form of the banking cartel and their emissaries, you know, the Illuminists, and so on and so forth. Um, and he was also fighting the Old World Order, which was really the monarchies that were keen to hang on to power and, of course, were beginning to make a marriage in hell with the banking classes. And and I like that. I like it as an idea. Maybe I'm just a sucker for it and it's not true, but I think you see then a parallel with him seeking to defend what they built. And I think the parallel with Hitler is similar. <laughs> I think it's not exactly the same, but it's similar um, in that he's seeking to defend this nation that they'd built and its mere existence under the rules, the way that life was being ordered, both in France under Napoleon and Germany under Hitler, was an affront to the old systems or the systems of control that the incumbent power bases throughout Europe had got used to. They didn't want it. Mm. And, you know, I've mentioned before, you know, if you, were, if you and I were alive in the 1930s and we'd floated over to Berlin or something in 1937 and seen what they were doing, we'd have gone, this is brilliant. We want a bit of this. <laughs> How do you well, do that? And, and, and so-called, you know, you take it to modern day um, circumstances and, and you could say that Putin is, is viewed as a, a thorn in the side of, of mm -hmm. the new world order. Uh, my, my friend in Canada is, is vehemently defensive of, of Putin and, mm -hmm. uh, or, or Putin, uh, however you want to pronounce it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, he, he would love to move to a Russian province because he says, you know, that the, they're not putting up with any of that new world order nonsense over there. But yeah. I see patterns forming here. You know, there's a as I've, I've brought it up before, but there is a, a huge similarity between the Danzig Corridor and the Donbass region with the Ukraine conflict. So mm -hmm. it's almost the same playbook being you know, carried out or played out over and over again throughout mm -hmm. history. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you were right in saying that if you want to go and see the film and acquire useful history, you're not going to get too much. You need to go in it with the history already with you and yes, you put, put your judgments aside that you're about to see something that will not be accurate and enjoy it, if that's the right word, for what it is. I actually found it just absolutely shot by. I couldn't believe that three hours had gone by. And, you know, I thought, where's the next three? That's literally all I can think of. That's way... No, 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 no. This is too fast, you know, because of all these things that were missed. You know, as you mentioned earlier, the whole of the... Apart from, you know, his problem in Moscow, really the start of that was the trouble prior to that in Spain and Portugal. That, that, that went bad you know and every time he took himself down there which he did maybe well i know he took himself down there once all of a sudden the french army began to recover all the ground they'd lost and it all worked and then he got called back to paris to deal with something else so literally you know you could say well maybe it's the technology of the day if they'd have had the telegram or something he could have sorted things out but you can yeah. see as a you know and he could have i suppose well you know, but uh, it, it was a lot to of be. the accounts that I've read about you know the struggles that they had in Spain and everything was basically because Napoleon was issuing orders from France which were gravely outdated to the circumstances that they found themselves in. Yeah, by the time so, they arrived. Yeah, yeah, by the time they arrived, because as you say, everything was travelling at the speed of horse. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know. Yeah, it really is. It really is. It's um. Yeah. It is. I'm trying to think of other bits that I wanted to be in the film that weren't. Um, hitting the pyramids with cannonballs was silly. That didn't happen. Oh, the no. other one. We might as well address it here. There is an old myth floating around that, although they didn't put it in the film, thankfully, because it is nonsense. 
that uh, Napoleon shot the nose off of the Sphinx, which is a bit much. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, uh, what, the way I read it first is, a uh, gunnery team, in need of some target practice, decided to just blow the nose off of this artefact. I mean, you know, if they were able to do that, a bloody good gunnery team, if they could do that, I don't know from what distance, but I've had people tell me this. And they said, no, it's... Um, he did all this, you know, so I thought that can't be right. And I went off and did a little bit of research. I found out that there was a Danish surveyor and, ge- and geologist who had been in that part of the world in the 1600s, like 150 years prior. Mm-hmm. He'd done a lot of drawings. And there's the drawing of the Sphinx, noseless. There was no nose in 1660 or 70 odd or whenever it was this guy had drawn it. So, And there were excellent drawings, you know, the guy could really draw. So that's, that's also... That's the thing. I mean, like you say, that with the discrepancies with the with the Egypt thing, you know, they could have done a little bit on the fact that the British fleet had attacked the French fleet in the Nile and been highly successful because the French fleet thought they'd more than moored themselves close enough to the shoals not to be outflanked, mm-hmm. and they hadn't, and the British fleet went in. Um, that was, as I say, that was the reason he left yeah. Egypt mm-hmm. because he was threatened by the British. Why couldn't they put that in there? You know, why could they not put in the fact that the British were a thorn in his side pretty much from day one? They were. And another and another aspect is the amount of money Pitt was quite happy to send to Austria and elsewhere to keep agitating against Napoleon. They sent a lot of money. A lot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, interestingly, I don't know quite how it all links together, but it obviously does. This money, because it was about the pounds going all over the place, of course, the commercial strength of Britain at the time is pretty big in comparison to anybody else because of all these boats we've got i say we i wasn't alive but you get the gist and uh so all that money and of course the income tax arrives remember the income, not that i was alive at the time but uh hey we need to slap on an income tax to pay for the napoleonic wars and most of that money that was raised in tax was being used as bribes to go to austria and russia and this that and the other you know uh to do these things uh, i'm sure you see Although, obviously, people look at him and say, you never should have gone into Russia. And, of course, in retrospect, it's a bad thing. But from his point of view, Tsar Alexander had broken his word. I don't Not know how- just that. Mm-hmm. Not just that. If they hadn't, because it got to the point with the, with the Russian army, mm-hmm. whereby the Tsar said, the Tsar said to them, you're going to have to stand. Mm-hmm. They want, he wanted them to stand at Moscow. Mm-hmm. He said, because it's a matter really now of you know public opinion towards sovereignty yeah you know the the people are getting ashamed that the army keeps running away because yeah. the armies did keep running away from napoleon because he was going to cream them yeah it's as simple as that and it was if it wasn't for the fact of the scorched earth policy and the fact that they'd actually evacuated pretty much the whole of moscow mm-hmm. so that when he got there there was there was nothing to conquer you know, Moscow, possibly the most sacred city of Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, this is why it got to the point with, with, the, with the Russian monarchy where they were chastising the, the military uh, high command saying, you've got to stand and fight. You've, now, you've got to do it. This is a matter of our country's honour now. Yes. Yeah. You can obviously say, you know, I mean, the same tactic. They're the only country, the Russians are the only people that can keep on retreating for an awful long way like <laughs> do you see Absolutely. And, and, and therefore because it's such a long way it's not viewed as a retreat or as a backing off it is viewed rightfully 
as a tactic of devastating effect. It's um, yeah. Uh, you know what would you, we would if we were Russians we'd agree with it. We go no, just keep walking over there, walk over there, walk over there, walk over there, keep walking. Don't let him catch us up. Then they'll get exhausted and then we just wipe them out. And I'm afraid that that's what happened. You know, um, it's happened. It's happened twice in two hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's to do the great geographical challenge of that place. Of course, I think we can say now that what with uh, missiles and everything, that's all over, you know. So it really, the whole challenge of distance and moving moving weaponry distance used to have to be moved by foot or horse, then by yes. tank. And one so of the interesting... The, yeah. I was going to say, we're back to the logistics again, aren't we? We are. We're moving such a huge body of men. Mm-hmm. Six, what did you say? Six hundred and eighty thousand. Something like that. It's, a col- it's colossal, and you know, very similar to the Waffen SS. They were made up of multiple nationalities. Dutchmen. See, the Dutchmen built the bridge at the Beretzina. Dutch sappers went in there, or carpenters, and built this. So there were all these different divisions, just like the Waffen SS, where he'd settled things down. He, I mean, he had to. Everybody says, "Oh, he's attacking everybody," and all this, that, and the other. Well, it's basically defence. They were massing against him all the time. He defeated something like seven alliances. And, of course, the last few, it went wrong. You know, it just it just went badly wrong. I mean, the, the amazing thing that they could he could even muster an army for Waterloo, to be quite honest. I mean, they get back in, in 1812 into pa- and lose Paris. The Russians get into Paris, you know. He then has to uh, abdicate and goes to Elba. Um, and he only makes it back to... Uh, to Paris with about 40,000 men out of the entire 640, 650,000. Those 40,000, however, as I understand it, were his guard and his most intelligent officers and formed the basis of being able to restructure an army. But one of the problems they had at Waterloo is that most of the guys that were fighting there were brand new into it to some degree. Yes. And therefore they they weren't seasoned in the way that they used to be. And... um, you know, we sound as though we're almost defending it. It's not. I'm just. Um, it's an amazing life of a guy fighting against something on every single front and still creating something amazing. I mean, some of the scenes that I would have liked to have seen was a confrontation with the Sanhedrin. I think this is about 1803 or four. I've mentioned it here before because you see, there's uh, basically it kind of de-ghettoized the Jews out of Paris, and this is part of a secondary problem. It almost goes into biblical stuff, which I won't touch on today, but it's to do with the little horns and this, that, and the other. Sort of unleashing of something is part of that. But I know that he called them because he was uh, instrumental in putting the Code Napoleon together, which was a gathering together of all these laws to try and simplify it as a code. Now, I haven't looked into that. There may be some nasty things in there that I don't like and don't agree with. I'm just pointing out that that is what he did. The parallel, I suppose, is is to some degree, although maybe in essence not, but to some degree similar to what uh, Alfred the Great did with his daughter when they pulled in all the laws of England to effectively form the core of the body of, of the common law based on traditions and habits, you know, in the different regions or the different kingdoms of England, as they were known back then. Mm-hmm. And he brought them in and he basically said to them, which one? Which law? Which which is which will it be? A bit like John Wayne. Which will it be? Uh, is it going to be... <laughs> is it going to be uh, the Talmud? Or is it going to be the Code Napoleon? And uh, I don't know what I don't know what the outcome is. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm left on tenter hooks as well. What, what did they say? They went off. I remember they went. We've got to go away and think about this. Said, oh, okay, I don't, um, but that's about eight. I think that's the early 1800s, 1802, 83. Maybe he's just been made emperor. So it's round about that period, or he's just made himself emperor. It's not bad. 
making yourself emperor and it working. <laughs> so that's quite Do you know if there's any, uh, just because obviously you're probably a bit more well-read on the Napoleonic era than I am, but do you know if there's any truth, because in the film he's, he states that you know, he, instead of having the crown placed upon his head, he takes the crown himself and announces yeah. to the, the onlooking audience that he found the, the crown of France in the gutter mm-hmm. and he places it on his own head. Yeah. Um, is there any truth in that little section there? Uh, well, he did do that. Yeah, I don't know whether he said those exact words, but he absolutely crowned himself. Yep, he did. And he made, he made sure he got in there before the Pope could do it. And he was sending a signal to the Roman Catholic Church, which is, you're not in charge. It was yeah. symbolic, and he meant to do it, absolutely. So um, uh, if he didn't say what the actor said in the film, it's a pity, because it's actually quite a good line. <laughs> Yes, I is. found I found the throne of France in the gutter, and I place it atop my own head. Uh, I mean, and uh, they also shot that piece perfectly because there is a painting of that. I was thinking of even using it tonight, but I thought it's so well known. It's a wonderful painting. Of yeah, well, there's, him, there's actually a scene of the guy paint like sketching, mm, hurriedly sketching out that. That's right. That actually, so the artist is included in the film, isn't he? That's, that, yes, well, that was he quite is. a nice little touch. Yeah. It was. It was very, very good. And you've got to say the sets are amazing. I mean, I don't know where they, if these buildings still stand. I mean, it's just, uh, and France, you know, the other thing is that France was the most powerful nation in Europe at the time. Um, as powerful mm. on land as we were at sea, you know, but we've been able to say that for a long time. We can't say it now, of course. Well, ever since well, the Spanish Armada got crippled, basically, uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> Need to do a thing on the Spanish Armada, though, because you know you know of, or you may not know, but you know Dennis Wise. Um, the I don't video know him, maker. but I know of him. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. fantastic. And if you're listening, yeah. Dennis, keep getting well. Um, Dennis has beda- uh, beguiled me with a few sentences about a year ago um, where he said there's more than one armada are you aware of that? I said no, he said oh there were several goes there may have been as many as three I'm, <laughs> I'm going ooh now I haven't even I don't know even where to begin on that one but he does so I'm hoping he gets well because I'd love to pick his brains and get him on here at some point and we could go through that you know, as, as part of a deep dive of looking at that because it, it does tap into possibly magic or what we think of as magic, the raising up of these storms. There's something, maybe it's all blah, blah, blah. Oh, Paul, you've had, you know, not enough to drink or too much to drink or something like that. But uh, <laughs> I, do, I think that there's, there's something about it. There is something about it. So, yeah, there were more than one. And, um, you know, in Ireland as well, just a completely disconnected to move off. There's a people there called the Black Irish. They're over on the uh, west coast of Ireland. And the reason that they've got very, very dark hair, because uh, it's the, um, because they're very almost black, this is because one or more of the armada that was blown off course went up the east coast of England, right around the tip of Scotland, came back down the west coast of Ireland, were shipwrecked there, and that was it. And so they interbred with the Irish people of the town or wherever it was. This will be in the 1500s. And, and away it goes, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've I've recently. I don't want to get into it too much now, but I've I've recently been getting into the whole St. Francis Drake thing as well because, as I said to you the other night, um, my history. I took history as a GCSE, uh, which is Mm -hmm. a supposed qualification over here in the UK. Um, But my history throughout my schooling started at the Peasants' Revolt, then the Industrial Revolution. And then we missed out a whole lot of stuff and went straight on to World War One, 
mm-hmm. and World War II up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that was the entirety of my national curriculum of historical teachings. Um, so left out were things like St. Francis Drake, mm-hmm. you know, um, Horatio, Admiral Horatio Nelson, and yep. all these massively prominently influential figures in British history. Yeah. Uh, and instead I had to learn about Hitler and the diary of Anne Frank and you lucky that lad. kind of thing. You lucky lad. The thing that always strikes me about history as I remember being taught it is just how jolly it all was. You never got a sense of the, all the, the sheer... <laughs> physical wreckage of these events anyway there's a bloke and he did this and then he chopped his head off oh it's all right you know you just think nobody goes into what that's actually like actually i've got one exception to that my my oh, first yeah. my one and only exception to that is i remember watching footage of world war one in a history lesson yes and looking towards and i didn't say anything to anyone else in the class because i thought it would just be mean mm. but i looked back and my history teacher she was sat at the back of the class crying as these guys were falling on footage. You know, mm-hmm. these these guys were going over the top and instantly just dropping to the ground. And she yeah. was there were te- there were tears rolling down her cheeks. And I I look back on that and I think, you know, she had a real understanding of yes. what was going on. Whereas yeah. for for kids, it's just you can't well, have it, can you? You can't acquire that understanding. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yay, give me a machine gun. Yeah, let's go kill him and all that kind of stuff. We'll be this guy and you can be that guy and blah, blah, blah. Have you actually seen a body that's been struck by a missile and blown into a thousand pieces? No, let me show you, son. No, no, don't, don't, don't yeah. do that. Yeah, it's I mean, that, you know, it's, it's worse than you can pull You go, oh, I couldn't imagine it was that bad. Yeah, well, it's worse than that. It's that awful. And so. It's, it's terrible. It's absolutely mm-hmm. terrible. And when I think about, you know, quite often, you know, we're hearing a lot nowadays about. Um, you're people dying young, mm-hmm. uh, more and more nowadays we're hearing you know, about people dying young for whatever reason. Don't want to yes. sort of go into that now. But, um, you know, I often say, uh, my dad, who's 82, often tells me that it's a race between the cancer and the alcohol. And he hopes that it's the alcohol because it will be slightly more fun. <laughs> what a he's chirpy very attitude. Honest. He's, he's, chirpy he's attitude so honest and has. pragmatic. Yes. Yeah, no, yeah. he's he's pragmatic. He's pragmatic, yeah. and he does it with with a spring in his step. Um, and I yep. always say to him, you know what? If I got knocked down by a bus tomorrow, I've still had twice, at least twice, the life than all these people I read about. You know, all yes. these World War One and World War Two guys mm-hmm. that went out there and gave their lives for this little island that we've got here you know mm-hmm. to keep it safe to keep it ours well that's what they were told and i guess to some degree it's true but i think the main thing was to keep the money in the purses of the bankers that was well the of most course important it was, but thing, I, wasn't it but we can't yes, have them but, losing uh, money in the eyes of the gentlemen that went out there of and believe me they were gentlemen yeah in the eyes of the of the intelligentsia if you want to put it that way that went out there and the common man Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I don't know whether you don't know whether you heard me talk about this last night, but I've got a dictionary of fa- phrase and fable here at home, right. which I, I always leave in in the downstairs bathroom for any visitors to keep themselves amused while they might be using it. Um, it's a <laughs> it's a huge book. It's one and a half thousand pages, and it's a dictionary of of phrases and fables. Mm-hmm. And one of the phrases it has in there is the man in the street. Oh, him. Yes, him. And, yeah. and the definition is thus. The ordinary citizen who, in the aggregate, makes public 
opinion. So the ordinary citizen who in the aggregate makes public opinion. Mm -hmm. Well, how dare this book take away from the authority of the mainstream media and the government? Yep. (laughs) (laughs) How dare they? How dare he? How dare they indeed? Is Is that the root of the man on the Clapham omnibus? That's the same thing, isn't it? Is that the sort of Do you want me to look it up as we're talking? I'm sure people outside of England couldn't give a whatever about. about <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, if you're I'll look it up England, after the show. Then. Stupid <laughs> English types. What are they talking about? So there's a place in London called Clapham, isn't there? Or Clam, if you want to be posh. They used to start doing it all posh and pretending to be snobby. Oh, I live in Clam, but it's Clapham. See, Clap Ham, Clap Ham. And uh, yeah, and uh, it features a lot in lyrics of pop songs, doesn't it? Clapham, it's always popping up. Um, Squeeze, don't they have a? I met a girl in Clapham, something like that. Anyway, um, <laughs> what was I talking about? Anyway, what was I talking about? Oh yeah, so the man on the the Clapham omnibus is sort of like your average bloke in the street, the man in the street. That was, and it became known, I think, in newspapers or maybe it's it's all to do with if it appeals to the man on the Clapham omnibus, him, you know this metaphorical Englishman who's always on the bus going to work or whatever, you know. It is in the book. I'm just I'm just finding it now. So just oh, keep, very good. Keep, keep talking. Well, I will. So anyway, I'm just going to zoom over to, to Napoleon again. And one of the bits that I would have liked to have seen in the film, but yet again, when you think about it, really needs to go into the TV series, which is sorely needed, the more I keep thinking about it, or would be marvellous, was to do with Haiti. H-A-I-T-I. I might have mentioned this here before, but now that we're doing the things, we'll, we'll cover it a little bit here. Haiti became the second republic in the world after the United States, even before the French Republic had fully formed, I think. And uh, so word of the revolution had got to Haiti after 1776. I don't know quite when. And they went, oh, we'll have a bit of this. So they formed a republic and got on with it. Now, the the racial makeup of Haiti at the time was there were several thousand French Europeans there who managed and ran the island and did a pretty good job of it, I believe. Of course, there'll be accounts that tell me how evil they were, but uh, I've heard good things as well as no doubt bad. Then there were um, the African population, or I suppose maybe they were the descendants of slaves, or maybe they were indigenous people to Haiti, so I'm a little bit ignorant on that. And then there was... um, the race-mixed population. So there were these three groups because there'd been a bit of that going on a bit too much. Well, when the idea of um, being in charge made its presence known in Haiti, the uh, the blacks of Haiti uh, got involved in a war with everyone. They all got involved in war. And the blacks killed everyone. Everyone. I think about seven people got back to New Orleans or something. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but it wasn't many. Seven Europeans. They killed everyone, the mulattoes and the white people. And uh, Napoleon had to send boats out there. This is while he's dealing with us lot and everything on the continent. With, I think, about 29,000 troops went out. I don't know how many boatloads that is, but it's quite a few, right? I don't know whether you can get a, a, a thousand on one boat, but I doubt it. It seems an no. awful lot. No, right? certainly not. Yeah, so it's absolutely bloody boatloads of them. Well, of these 29,000 that went out there, 25,000 died. Not from fighting. They didn't fight at all. They got went into the jungle, got jungle fever and died. They didn't have anything to deal with them. So that didn't turn out too good. So, and this is whilst all this other stuff's going on. Oh, I'll just send 30,000 troops over there on some wooden boats 4,000 miles away. Really? Yeah, we're going to have to sort that out. Well, so I suppose it's no different to, 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 to Britain policing slavery. 
mm-hmm. in its in its empire while the Napoleonic Wars were going on. At, I at guess which not. time we lost two thousand two thousand yeah. Royal Naval personnel trying to, to stop slavery. slavery. Yeah, trying to yep. stop slavery. Nasty old white man. Yeah, I feel suitably evil today. I don't know about you. I'm feeling really quite nasty. <laughs> so, yeah, so it's good. Go. If you're white, it. just bear it in mind that you're a Nazi and you're evil. Okay, don't forget that because our betters have told us this. So yes, we must keep indeed. that well in mind. They're so right about everything. And um, the man, yeah. the man on the Clapham omnibus. Oh, he's arrived, has he? Come on, let's hear from him. Yeah, okay. okay, in in legal parlance, mm-hmm. the reasonable person. Possibly the phrase was first used by Sir Charles Bowen, QC, later Lord Bowen, mm-hmm. who was the junior counsel against the claimant, claimant in the Trickbourne case, 1871-74. to 74. That doesn't actually mean anything to me, but it simply means, in legal, parliament, in legal parlance, the reasonable person. So now, that would, that's interesting. That case that you just mentioned, spell it out to me. T... Uh, 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 Tichborne, sorry. Yeah. T-I-C-H-B-O-R-N-E. The Tichborne claimant, yes? Yes. Mm, I think, <laughs> nerdy am I, at the time, this was the longest trial in British legal history. Right. Okay. Yep. And because the defendant, one of the defendants, uh, sorry, one of the barristers, a guy called Thomas Keneally, whom I know a great deal about. Keneally's an astonishing individual in all sorts of ways. Apparently, oh, wow. we do go down some tangents, don't we? Uh, yeah, yeah, I love can't it. help it. I love you it. it up. It's just switched it. All, all the lights just went on my head, right? Keneally uh, was of Irish. I think he came from Dublin, spent nearly all his life here, um, was a ferocious litigant, a great verbal performer. Apparently, his theatrics in court, he got out of hand, by the way, I've got to tell you, it sounds like he got out of hand, uh, was so amazing that it became the hottest ticket in town to turn up and see him do his thing. This went on for three right. years, isn't it? Is that what it is? 71 to 74, right? This thing, That's right, yeah. Yeah, uh, and uh, massively wrong, cost bucket loads. The king, the king and the queen went to see him a lot. <laughs> it was that good, right? And it was about a claim. Someone said, I am this, I'm the person who's due this inheritance. And he said it was, and they all said, no, it isn't. And it just went on and on and on. So, oh, God, my brain, I'm going to get a new one. Anyway, that went in there. So there you go. But that's interesting that that would come from that. Um, yes, so it's, there possibly we go. the phrase was first used by Sir Charles Bowen QC, yes, uh, who was junior counsel against the claimant. Yes, that would so, be right. So he would have been against Keneally. That's that's yes, correct. So he was saying, "Well, the reasonable man, mm-hmm. i.e., the man on the street, or yes. trying to elude to the man on the street, but it mm-hmm. wasn't. It was the reasonable man." So there you go, the man of. <laughs> <laughs> the man on the Clapham omnibus. Omnibus is great, yeah. isn't it? So, of course, I don't know whether it means the same. Are you the reasonable man on the Clapham omnibus, uh, Scott? I, I would, I would say I'm ominously reasonable, but I wouldn't mm-hmm. say I'm the man on the Clapham omnibus. You're Mr. Scott of the Napoleonic on the on the Clapham omnibus. That's who you are. That's who you are. you're the we'll, highly reasonable. We'll, we'll take Mr. that Scott. and run with it for this evening. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I'm adding lots and lots of things to your sort of title for this show. It's really rather I, I good. like it. Accolades. Like I, keep, yeah, yeah. As yeah. long as they're well, We've got 20 minutes to go, yeah. There's going to be all sorts wow. of things thrown in. You don't know what you might be called by the end of it. So, <laughs> as long as the, none of them begin with C, I'm sure. No, 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 no. Captain, you mean, and things like that. I understand exactly yeah. what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, yes. Uh, hang on just a minute. I, 
by the way, I'm just trying to see if I've actually... Oh, I don't know if I have. Have I? Um, I just wanted to see... Oh, I have. Yeah, there we go. If anybody wants to call in, I know people don't, but if you do, you can. Well, actually, I don't know that people don't, because sometimes they do. If you're on Rumble, you'll see the telephone numbers to call in. If you want to call in and say, I hate Napoleon, or I think he's lovely, or, you know, when did he die, and all that kind of stuff, or anything about what we've been talking about, because it's been a bit of a... Uh, a uh, free-for-all as we've jumped up and down the timeline here. The numbers are there. If you're in the US and you want to phone in, 605-313-5866. That's 605-313-5866. If you're in the UK, 0330-390-2135. There'll be a quiz and an exam afterwards. When you get through, the code is 5666699. Difficult to say, but easy to see visually if you're looking at Rumble. So head on over there if you want a reminder of it. Um, now, where were we? Oh, yes, here I am with you, uh, the man on the Clapham omnibus. I quite like that. It might <laughs> stick, you know. It might stick. You might be done for. I'm so glad. Uh, do you know what? I'm what? amazed. Uh, you, you never cease to amaze me because I didn't think I'd come up with a definition about that. And you'd be like, I know all about that subject. <laughs> you never cease to amaze Well, me. I amazed myself. I didn't even... <laughs> I just kicked it all. I've got books by Keneally on, on my shelf, four feet from the back of my head. And I wasn't right. even reading his other books. His other books are absolutely astonishing, but it's for a totally different type of show. They're a, a, he's an amazing character. He's actually buried, I believe, about 10 miles from here. They may have moved him. Uh, I, I once got a photograph. I wanted to go and find it because I've been um, taken up greatly by some of his other writings in the spiritual realm. He's, a, he's quite a formidable guy. For example, I'll just mention one thing. You've heard of the Book of Enoch. Now we're spiraling off. We're getting away from Napoleon. We're going, you've heard of the Book of Enoch, right? This very, <laughs> have, very yes. old book, right? Most people will have heard it. Um, it's an astonishing uh, extremely stimulating tale on all sorts of levels. It's more than a tale, but there we go. Well, he did a version of this, uh, the Book of Enoch, which I suppose by today's standards we say was channeled, and he did this in the 1870s, whilst he was still being a barrister, right? So he was taking it with a lot of things. Now, the book itself, in the volume that I have, I think it's about 260 pages long, so it's quite long. His introduction, 600 pages 600-page introduction wow. to a 250-page book. Yeah, The introduction's mind-blowing. <laughs> it's mind You go, I didn't know this information or these things even existed. When you walk into it, you go, what is this? What world have I walked into? Well, it's an astonishing one. And, uh, of course, he had a, a tremendous control of language. I mean, you see, I'm kind of in love with all those Victorian types. I can't help it. I think I've kind of been born out of whack. I would have probably been dead on a battlefield with you, mate. We'd have been, you know, the men on the Clapham omnibus or the men in the Clapham ditch probably pretty quickly because I, I don't come from nobility, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, But um, there's something about the rigour and the sort of self-control, or at least my perception of it, that I'm quite attracted to. And I, you know, I would like to think it's all going to come back, <laughs> basically. I'm deluded, aren't I? But uh, I'd like to think well, that it might come you know, back. There's, uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> there's always hope. Um, and, you know, I, I, I think this this world that we live in is very much like the, the pendulum swings in one direction and... and as fast as it tries to swing in one direction, weight gathers against it in the other direction. And, you know, mm -hmm. as I say, with all, with all this push at the moment, I mean, you have to admit that, uh, every, I, and I hate to use the label, 
because it is just a label. But mm-hmm. isn't it funny how right-wing everyone is seeming to become in the UK at the moment? Oh, it's wonderful. <laughs> isn't it interesting? It's very, very interesting. I re- where did I read this the other day? That um, a right-wing backlash is coming that's going to be immense. But it's not really a right-wing backlash. It's what you said. It's a pendulum. Things have mm-hmm. their moment. And um, we're actually, we all are really for the middle ground don't mind people having a bit of fun but we don't want you to go too far because now you're causing cultural decay and you're disgusting so don't do that that, that then we get furious we don't want people the other way we go right you're all going to go out and perform an army we're going to go and kill everyone no we don't want that either we want no. we need both we need we need military defense everybody does they need that and and we need to be focusing on those things that that treat us well you know that we know which is think- basically to build good families that's it uh, that's absolutely it uh, so it's you're not the first person that said that to me in the last three or four days. It's really interesting that this is coming up. Because yeah. one of the things I've said to people, Maleficus, repeatedly for years, and will probably carry on saying it, is I ask people, I say, you know, are, you're a gay. Are you against globalism? Yeah. Against the woke agenda and all the LGBT and G stuff and all this sort of perversion in culture and everything. Yeah, yeah. I said, oh, you're a Nazi then. And they go, no, I'm not. I say, oh, you are. No, I'm not. I said, you're going to be called that. Do you think? I said, <laughs> yeah, you'll be called it. I said, because you don't go along with their fascist ideology. You know, the left wing is completely fascist. It's totally dictatorial. We have the moral high ground, they say to themselves. We know better for you, plebs. We know best. You don't need any free will. In fact, if you start exercising, we're going to kill you. It's that great <laughs> irony that they don't get. We love everybody. We want you to love everybody. And those of you that won't love everybody, we're going to kill you because you're troublemakers. No, hang on. Yeah, exactly. You know, where say to you, can't you think about this a little bit? Don't you see that you might be the problem? Oh, no, we couldn't possibly be the problem. Well, lovely. <laughs> That's where the evil is. It's pure yeah. evil. It just it is. is. It is. You know, I mean, as you well know, I went to the the sort of anti-migrant marches down here in Cornwall, yes. Cornwall, southwest of, southwest of the UK, and there was the usual Antifa squad stood on the other side of the road. The Antifa lot were like, "Way enthusiastic!" Yes. Hello. No, we lost you for a bit yeah. there. Probably so, right in the middle of your thunderous sentences. Yeah, you just we, that's the first time that's happened actually on this thing. So oh, we lost okay. you for a uh, few seconds. I'm sorry about that. Literally, uh, so I asked I asked the opposition on the the, the Antifa lot on the other side yep. of the road while there was a lull in proceedings whether they were proud to be communists. At which point I got a resounding way. <laughs> you know, yes, they? of course we are. We're yeah, proud to be absolutely. communists. Yeah, yeah, and I, I said you you not got a very good track record, have you? At which point, obviously, it all crescendoed again and i couldn't really get a word in it again but just going back to what you said about how you know um you know we want everyone to love each other and if you don't love each other then we're going to kill you mm-hmm. that's the <laughs> um, gist of it again uh, well it is but again the man on the street the ordinary citizen who in the aggregate mm-hmm. makes or if you want creates public opinion Nothing to do with these idiots who consider themselves at the top of the food chain who pay for people like Antifa to visit my hometown and, Mm -hmm. you know, counter protest the fact that we don't want migrants being put up in hotels while our homeless are living on the streets. (laughs) You know, the whole let's it's good this because you've looped it. Well, for me, you have you've looped it right back into 
the French Revolution and the basis of this nonsense. Obviously, they had the slogan, did they not? Liberty, fraternity, egality. I mean, uh, of course they did, yeah. Isn't, that, isn't it lovely? I mean, who could possibly be against liberty and brotherhood uh, and equality? I, I mean, come on, it's just great, isn't it? But of well, course it's... <laughs> yes. Can I, can, I read, can I read the uh, Protocols of Zion number one? <laughs> Man on the Clapham omnibus, read away. Yes. We, are, we, we were the first to cry amongst the masses of the people the words liberty, equality, and fraternity. Mm. Stupid Gentile pole parrots flew down from all sides on, onto these baits and with them carried away, uh, carried away the well-being of the world. Yes. Uh, the would-be wise men of the Gentiles were so stupid that they could not see that in nature there is no equality. There cannot be freedom. The meaning, of course, of freedom is understood by socialists and communists as freedom to wreck your own country. Yes. So um, there is no such thing as equality in nature. There is no, no such thing as liberty in nature. Nope. And there certainly is no such thing as fraternity in nature other than your own heritage and your culture with the people that you live with yes your nation that's quote right. unquote mm -hmm. yeah there is no universal brotherhood because there doesn't need to be one it's not a problem that there isn't one it's a problem that people don't actually stick to the brotherhood that they've been issued with i.e their kith and kin that's the only one that counts. Not because I or you or anybody else says so, but because nature shows it to be thus. We see it. We go, uh, but of course, these people don't see it. And, you know, I often think of these that sort of liberal mindset, uh, a bit like the response you were just talking about in a crowd there, as people that have not thought about anything they've just heard. It just sounded great at the time, and let's go for it. And you're saying, look, you'd just like to stop and have a cup of coffee or tea, in our case, you know, sit down. Let's just go over this a little bit because i think you might have i think we need to just examine it a little bit before you go off and start chopping everybody's heads off with a guillotine what do you think what do you think think it might be worth having a look but of course they're no, taken I, I, with this stuff as i they're say i think you're being a bit hasty there let's get the guillotine out and think about it afterwards yes and that i mean really seriously that, what happened yeah <laughs> I, I i'm gonna say it again if, if you're only catching this for the first time if you want to read a book that will and i'm reasonably sure anybody with an inquiring mind will be enthralled by it nesta webster's book on the french revolution is outstandingly good it's highly readable it's not difficult to read at all and it reveals a pattern of behavior that is chilling i'm afraid it's 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 a horror story a real one a real horror story of people becoming unhinged in the space of like a crowd mob mentality. And the reason why I think it's relevant is that that's what we have seen over the last two or three years with regards to the crowd being whipped up with regards to government advice to stick a needle up your bum because it's going to stop COVID. The, the whole thing is exactly the same, not in the sense that we put guillotines up, but you never know. Maybe there are mental guillotines. You know, there are psychological <laughs> things that are chopping people off. That there are. It gets really hairy if you can't, it's this breakdown in communication. It's not like, oh, I'm not talking to them. Uh, uh, uh. It's that when the communication or the words are being sent backwards and forwards, there's no comprehension on one or both sides. None. Absolutely. Yeah, no comprehension of what's being said. 
Not forgetting yeah. also that during the time that COVID was being sort of uh, and, and, and all that stuff was being pushed out, there were people in the independent media, whether this comes from some sort of genetic memory or not, mm -hmm. uh, or whether it comes from genuine research, please, folks, answers on the back of a postcard, maleficusoutlook.com. It's fine. <laughs> Just send me a mail if you've got any proof one way or the other. But there were a lot of people talking about FEMA camps with guillotines. Yeah. <laughs> Weren't there? Yeah, there were. Absolutely. And you don't know what, I mean, you see, it's all, is, is psychological terror enough? It seems to be. It may well yes, be. I think it is. Um, if, you, if, you know, if you look at the sort of alternative news cycle, and I tend not to do it, because the alternative media is absolutely riddled with state actors, and you have to really work hard to detect them. But the main thing I would suggest you can detect them on is their budget. If they're in a nice studio and everything's going pretty good, you can be bet your bottom dollar it's not a straight situation <laughs> because the guys that are doing it are actually you know they're in a garret somewhere by chewing their fingernails off going am i going to pay for the milk i mean that's kind of my life to somebody you know i'm exaggerating a bit but you know what i mean right it's not alex jones everyone i know you all know that I was probably listening here i shouldn't really say that because we've just followed him and he does get some good stuff out but this is about um segmenting stuff i think it's definitely about that you can't just go around and just you know talk blather all the time but it it's like how far can we go in communication well you know that there's a the point when you really start to hit that hard truth is the moment when the heat comes on that's what's not wanted further up the chain it's just not wanted at all and napoleon's life seems to be about that you know they had to muster a lot of armies to get this idea that had inspired the French. The other thing I was thinking as well, Maleficus, with regards to the vigour of the French army, I think that's a good word. I'm not saying that they necessarily had more than the other armies, although it seems to be, because bloody hell, they were busy fighting everyone, is that maybe, you know, the unleashing of this, um, these restraints which they had perceived, and I don't mean from the king, but really from the, 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 the terror, the reign of terror under Robespierre and the directorate. Yeah. This is why it all went bad, you know, and then Napoleon basically did recover france it had been thrown into the toilet and he did recover it in much the same way of course that world war one and the weimar republic you know destroyed germany and that that group of gentlemen arrived and did a similar thing but of course in a modern and germanic way in, in, in comparison to napoleon it's also very interesting that and when of course sorry yeah go i was going to say well it's, I, I was about to finish your sentence it's also very interesting that um you know, certain banks were paying the paying the paying the bill mm -hmm. as well. You know, both with um, you know the overthrow of the Weimar Republic, as you know, the, there were certain people that uh, uh, Chief Justice Jackson wanted to be hauled over the coals in the Nuremberg trials, and I believe it was the British Freemasons that got them off the hook. I say, those chaps, eh? Yes. Yeah, Freemasonry. So I mean, it's a big it's a big problem. Um, I was pointing out to someone earlier today in a conversation that, as far as I'm aware, Adolf, Mr. Hitler, is the only person to shut lots of lodges down, like loads, like yeah. tons, like everywhere they then, went, they were shut down. As, as I say, I don't want to, um, I, I don't want to defend or not defend uh, Mr. Hitler or mm -hmm. Mr. Schickelgruber, as, as the British used to like to call him. Mm -hmm. um, but you know. Nothing happens without money. And there was a reason that he could afford 
a big army of brown shirts to police his meetings. Mm -hmm. um, nothing happens with that money, especially war. Especially war. It's an extremely cash-consuming business. It's, it just chews up resources and needs more replenishment all the time. And, of course, it effectively, uh, inexorably, hands over control of the remnant of the nation to that money force, which, is, of course, is what happened in the 1800s and in the, and in the last century, you know, considerably, which was all by design. Ha, 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 ha. Uh, knowing it after the fact, of course, is, is irritating. Knowing how to recover our situation, of course, is the great challenge going forward. It is. It's a tremendous challenge. Um, uh, I mean, I, I had a conversation earlier today with someone. We were talking about this. And he raised the point. He said to me, if you look, and this is obvious. It would be obvious to all of you listeners, I'm sure. If you, if you look at the technology that we have available, we should be living an an extremely comfortable and wealthy life. Now, not that I'm targeting that necessarily, but it should be completely beyond this nonsense that we're having to endure at the moment. Absolutely. And uh, it's, it's complete. Uh, it's a totally artificial situation. The, the, the problem for those who, who are going to do everything in their power, and it's a lot that they've got to retain power, is that they realize that we are sensing that we don't need them at all. They're not needed. I was just needed. about to say exactly that. You know what the yeah. solution is? Is to turn our backs on these people and to think mm. about how we ought to be living. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems we've got is that we keep looking at all the fear porn put in front of us. And, and to quote Bill Hicks, it's like a man with a sore tooth. It hurts, but he can't leave it alone. Yep. It's absolutely right. It's very, very true to it. And it's, it, is, it develops into a bad habit. I've had people, I say, stop sending me that. They go, well, it's all I know how to do to, help, to sort of alert you. I said, I'm fully alerted. I don't need any more stuff. I said, if you could replay the news from the 1970s, it'd be just the same. Why do we do that? Just yeah. get the old news out and play it because it's, it's all blather. It's distraction. It's taking us away from our constructive powers, which are considerable and which we've got to sort of reignite and pull back. And we've got some very testing conversations to have. There are people that are having these conversations right now, but they are, by necessity, they're going to be in small groups because these things are frowned upon, then they're going to, oh, you're all haters, and all that kind of stuff's going to come up. But that stuff is, is going to percolate down because there's nowhere else for the mind to go under these, it seems to me, there's nowhere else for people's thinking and logic to go, and they're going to have to re-engage with the fact that they have to be, and we have to come together as a we, and be responsible for how our national life is going to turn out. And we've been stripped and robbed of much of the machinery to do that. And we've got to bring it back in. It's, you know, that's... I've got, I've got the first step in that journey. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I would doubt whether most people nowadays would want to take it on. But here is my suggestion for the first step, folks. Ditch your mobile phones. Ditch them. Oh, you're nothing but a troublemaker, you. Ditch the mobile phone? What did he just say? Are you sure you're the man on the Clapham Omnibus? What's going on here? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Maleficus, <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. We're, we're just on the wind-out music. It's another minute to go, so we can talk over for a little while. But, um, you know, a bit like the Napoleon film not been long enough this conversation is not long enough we've left so much out as well even in trying to include absolutely. more stuff absolutely tons that has been left out so it's an ongoing thing i'm, I'm going to bring the uh, the french revolution theme back into the show more prevalently i mean we're in december we're nearly at the end of the year 
Um, and um, so we'll we'll have a few wrap up conversations. I might have a guest next week, but I've definitely got one in two weeks' time. So, um, but we'll we'll wait until we're a bit nearer to the date for that. That could be quite a bit of fun. Um, look, great. Thanks for joining me tonight. Um, uh, it's been my absolute pleasure. My first time on the Paul English Live Show. So thank you so much for inviting me on. It's brilliant. We'll have you back at some You're point, a You too. Fantastic. Um, that's it for this week, everybody. Um, we'll see you next week. Keep good and uh, bye for now. <laughs>